February of 2003, U.S. President George W. Bush, through his Secretary of State Colin Powell, presented what they would have the U.N. Security Council and the world believe was definitive evidence of Iraqi President Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction capacity. Was this just an intelligence error or a deliberate deception? Ten years later, how culpable are the governments of both Bush and Obama in war crimes and other violations of international law? And what is the responsibility of U.S. and Canadian governments as far as asserting the right of soldiers to not be forced to fight in conflicts which violate their conscience? We'll hear from legal scholar Francis Boyle and U.S.-Iraq war deserter and author Joshua Key on this 10-year anniversary of the lead-up to the Iraq War. On today's program, America's War, 10 years after Colin Powell. Giving you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of February 7th, 2013. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with some of the major news stories shaping the national and international political landscape. The leader of Tunisian opposition party, the Unified Democratic Nationalist Party, was shot Wednesday outside his home in Tunis and died in hospital shortly afterward. Chokri Elaid had been an outspoken critic of the Islamist-led government which had led the nation since the post-Arab Spring election of 2011. His small party had co-founded a leftist alliance known as the Popular Front, which would have contested this year's elections. The tragedy sparked a 1,000-strong protest outside the country's interior ministry, with demonstrators shouting, Shame! Shame! Chakri died! Where is the government? And, The government should fall! The murder comes in the midst of reports of intimidation of opposition groups in the country and while a commission of inquiry into an attack against a December trade union rally is set to release its findings in days. And that comes to us from the UK Guardian. Americans learned this week that the White House has developed a mechanism for lawfully targeting and killing Americans with drones and that the CIA has been using a secret airbase in Saudi Arabia to launch drone attacks against neighboring Yemen. One such drone attack killed U.S. cleric Anwar al-Awlaki and his son in September 2011. The embarrassing revelations came from U.S. media reports coming in the wake of a leaked administration memo. For 12 months, the White House had apparently put pressure on news outlets like the Washington Post to conceal this information in the name of national security. Adding to the concern about the drone base, the sensitivity within the region about the use of Saudi Arabia as a site for U.S. military bases. It was the continued presence of U.S. troops there after the 1991 Gulf War that supposedly provoked the 9-11 attacks, as well as the bombing of the Kobar Towers five years later. 
All U.S. military bases were thought to have been removed following the 2003 invasion of Iraq. John Brennan is the architect of Obama's drone policy and his pick for head of the CIA. Senators will expected to grill Brennan during his confirmation hearing Thursday, as well as press the White House for more details about the legal basis for its drone assassination campaign and the broader policy of allowing the president to sign off on a kill list of known targets. And that comes to us from the QK Guardian. The number of U.S. military veterans who take their own lives stands at 22 and are on the increase. So says a recent study from the Department of Veterans Affairs. The study's findings stated, quote, a majority of veteran suicides are among those aged 50 years and older. Male veterans who die by suicide are older than non-veteran males who die by suicide, and the age of distribution of veteran and non-veteran women who have died from suicide is similar. According to Robert Bossart, the epidemiologist and researcher who helmed the study, the study conducted over the course of two years suggests there is no veterans suicide epidemic, only that veterans are part of a larger national problem. That comes to us from the CBS DC. It was 10 years ago this week, on February 5th, 2003, that then-Secretary of State Colin Powell, at the request of President George W. Bush, gave uh, what was billed as definitive evidence, which led the world to believe that the Iraq government was a clear and present threat to the United States and the Western world. Since then, while all of the administration officials acknowledged that there were mistakes. None seem willing to accept that there was deliberate malfeasance or a uh, deliberate deception of the American people. On the line with us right now is Francis Boyle. He is an international law and human rights expert, <laughs> professor of law at the University of Illinois. He lectures and writes extensively and has authored many books, including Palestine, Palestinians, and International Law, and Biowarfare and Terrorism. He's been a harsh critic of both the Obama and Bush administrations. He's joining us now by phone to elaborate on this 10-year milestone and the significance of the case of the Iraq War invasion. So thank you very much for joining us, Professor Boyle. Well, thank you very much for having me on and my best to your listening uh, audience. The uh, Powell presentation at the Security Council was a joke and a fraud, and everyone knew it, even at the time, certainly here uh, in the United States. I remember in uh, October of 2002, before the uh, Powell uh, uh, propaganda, I had a debate with a uh, top honcho Republican Party here uh, lawyer here, David Rifkin, uh, live on uh, Pacifica Radio Network, where I said there are no weapons of mass destruction uh, in Iraq, and I went through both the uh, reports by the uh, the UNSCOM inspectors and the UNMOVIC inspectors, uh, the IAEA, and everything else. So uh, that was all a matter of public record, if you were following it uh, carefully. So Rivkin said to me, 
So do you mean, Professor Boyle, that the president is lying, the vice president is lying, the secretary of state is lying, the secretary of defense is lying, the director of the CIA is lying, and the uh, national security advisor to the president is lying. They're all lying about uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And I said, yes, we went through this exact same set of lies on uh, uh, Vietnam. Uh, 58,000 men of my generation were killed. Three million Vietnamese were exterminated. And uh, a generation later, uh, Secretary of Defense for Johnson, Bob McNamara, and, and Kennedy comes out in his uh, memoirs in retrospect uh, saying that, yes, he lied on behalf of the uh, president. These were all lies. Everyone knew it at the time. Powell knew it. Right now, Powell's just shedding uh, some imperial crocodile tears uh, over his report. Powell aided uh, and abetted uh, a Nuremberg crime against peace uh, against Iraq, for which we unanimously uh, convicted uh, Bush and Blair uh, at the uh, Kuala Lumpur uh, War Crimes Tribunal. The two of them are uh, international uh, criminals, Bush, Blair, and I would say Powell, too, for aiding and abetting. Um, and they should be uh, apprehended and prosecuted uh, by any state that, that gets a hold of the three of them. Hmm. Yes, and it's interesting because the, the major media... Uh, they, they held at the time, uh, Mr. Powell, and I suppose continue to, to hold these uh, individuals in high reverence and, and seem to be just allowing that meme of, uh, well, it was sort of a, a mistake to uh, continue. So is there maybe the mainstream well, this media... this is a joke, too. This is a joke, too, and that it's well known that uh, when he was a major in uh, Vietnam in the Army... Powell helped cover up the uh, My Lai massacre. So there's nothing, I mean, this guy was a bootlicker from the beginning, which is how he, he got his uh, position. Uh, I think he went to work for uh, Al Haig and then bootlicked his way up the uh, bureaucracy there. So uh, he's been a psychophant and a bootlicker and now a war criminal. So uh, I, I don't know what else to say, but I think everyone who tried to stop that war knew full well, right from the beginning, from the get-go, there were no weapons of mass destruction. And the IAEA reports in the Umavik uh, uh, reports uh, and the UNSCOM reports prove it. So what they, had access to, they had access, Powell had access to the exact same documents I did. Mm. And, and Powell, uh, Bush, Blair, uh, they, they all lied. And everyone knew at the time they were lying. And I said, as early as uh, mid-October 2002, publicly on Pacifica Radio, Net Radio Network Live, they were all lying. But I wasn't the only one. And another, uh, the whole idea of the weapons inspectors at that time uh, is uh, set like September, October. And uh, you know, I remember hearing President Bush, I'm going to give Saddam Hussein one last chance to comply. And uh, that that whole business about sending the weapons inspectors was that was that also a, a deception, as far as we the evidence can can tell, or sure um, uh, the. Uh uh, report by Hans Blix, the last one he sent in there to the Security Council, made it clear they hadn't found any weapons of mass destruction. They just weren't there. Um, so uh, that, too, was uh, 
part of the charade. Indeed, it, it was Clinton who uh, pulled out, ordered the uh, U.N. weapons inspectors uh, uh, under Butler to get out prior to his uh, uh, bombing of Iraq uh, in Operation Desert Storm in, in an unsuccessful effort to uh, stave off impeachment by the uh, uh, U.S. House of Representatives. And the moment he was impeached, he stopped the bombing. So, uh, you know, there are just so many lies, propaganda, deceptions. It's, it's hard to go through them all. Uh, if you have a look at my book, Destroying World Order, uh, that takes the story up to the outbreak of the uh, uh, Bush Jr. Blair uh, war against Iraq in 2003. And then I uh, continue the uh, story in my book, uh, Breaking All the Rules, and then uh, tackling America's toughest questions. So, you know, the footnotes are there. You can read it for yourself. Uh, Professor Chomsky has said pretty much the same thing I've said if you go through any of his writings. Mm. Now, uh, in tar- terms of aiding and abetting this uh, war crime, uh, what, where, where does the mainstream media fit in? Would you say they should be held accountable as well? Well, of course they're accountable. There, there's no question at all. I mean, this goes back to the classic work by uh, Herman and Chomsky, Manufacturing Consent, where they did a detailed content analysis of the U.S. media's uh, coverage of the Vietnam War and concluded that the U.S. media uh, fully supported the uh, uh, Vietnam War and served nothing more than a conveyor belt for U.S. governmental uh, propaganda uh, in support of the Vietnam War. And they applied uh, uh, the uh, propaganda uh, model by uh, Bernays, which you, you can have a look at. So nothing has changed, certainly, uh, in the last 50 years or more of my political life uh, when it comes to the uh, mainstream uh, U.S. Uh, news media. Nothing uh, mm. at all. In terms of uh, proper procedure, though, I mean, what uh, should, I mean, in, in an ideal world, I mean, we should be seeing, I presume you would argue that the, uh, the, the impeachment, if not the, and certainly the arrest of the people responsible. So uh, you know, what would, should have taken place to all these players, should have happened to all these players, uh, including uh, the media? Well, it, you know, it's harder to get the media. As I said, I've gotten uh, uh, Bush and Blair convicted uh, for Nuremberg crimes against peace, and we are uh, uh, trying to track them down and, and get them prosecuted uh, for that, yes, around around the world. And we have a committee set up uh, for that purpose. And I know your uh, colleague, Michel Chosodovsky, played played a very important role uh, in these efforts to, to his uh, great credit. As for the uh, media figures, you just can't. It, it, legally, it's hard to indict the media in general. You have to go after uh, specific uh, figures. We do have some precedent at uh, Nuremberg, uh, for example, Rosenberg uh, uh, inciting hatred against the Jews, and there was another media figure. And also now at the uh, International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, some media uh, uh, figures have been convicted uh, for inciting uh, genocide. So there is some precedent for indicting media figures. 
Uh, I would, you know, come to mind certainly uh, Bill O'Reilly uh, and and Sean Hannity uh, here in the United States are are two of the worst. Uh, but again, I you know I'm kind of busy doing other things right <laughs> now. Uh, but maybe um, uh, actually, I did have a student do a paper on um, uh, uh, accountability of uh, media for uh, uh, inciting uh, international uh, crime. So. There have been uh, uh, a handful of, of convictions, uh, and, and the ICTR uh, convictions are relatively new. So yeah. in theory, it can't be done, but, you know, we've got all sorts of wars going on right now, and uh, I'm trying doing my best, you know, Syria, Libya, Mali, uh, the Palestinians, uh, Afghanistan, whatever, and I'm, I'm working full-time against all these things, and... You know, going after the media people, uh, I regret to say, just cannot be very high on my list. Okay. Now, uh, having you know, made that uh, case for war, however fraudulent, it was waged without a, uh, a UN Security Council resolution making it a, a violation of the UN Charter. Uh, but the UN did uh, uh, allow... Uh, by the end of 2003, it did, you know, affirm the the right of, of U.S. troops to continue their operations in Iraq. So, uh, wh- where do you see the UN in terms of, of their role in this whole uh, situation? Yes, well, technically, I, I do analyze those uh, UN resolutions in the three books I mentioned to you, as well as another book, uh, "Protesting Power: War, Resistance, and Law" by uh, Rahman and. Uh, Littlefield, basically what the U.N. did was just accept the fact that uh, U.S. and British military forces uh, occupied Iraq and determined that in the course of that occupation, they were bound to obey the four Geneva Conventions of 1949 and the Hague Regulations of 1907. Uh, as we know, the United States and Britain paid absolutely no attention at all to the four Geneva Conventions of uh, 1949 and the Hague Regulations of 1907. Um, today, the UN certainly has has become—I won't say the General Assembly, uh, but certainly the uh, uh, Secretariat, Secretary General, Assistant Secretaries General, etc., uh, are nothing more than uh, rubber stamps for uh, the United States, first and foremost, and to a lesser extent, Britain and France. Look at the uh, shameless role uh, the U.N. bureaucracy and the uh, Secretary General Ban Ki-moon played both against Libya and now uh, against Syria. So, um, you know, the U.N. has gone the same way that the League of Nations did in the uh, late 1930s, uh, when it was subject to the depredations of uh, 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 Nazi Germany, uh, fascist Italy, uh, and in uh, Imperial Japan. It, it, it's nothing more than a, a front organization for U.S.-NATO uh, criminality around the world. Hmm. Now, uh, do, you, do you want to maybe just mention a, a couple of the uh, what you see as the more egregious uh, breaches of those uh, Geneva and Hague conventions that uh, you mentioned earlier? Well, I you know I have them all in my books. Uh, you know the uh, shock and awe, uh, depleted uranium, 
uh, Fallujah, which is uh, a Nuremberg war crime. If you if you read the Nuremberg Charter, uh, it says quite clearly that the wanton devastation of cities, towns, and villages is a Nuremberg war crime, along the lines of what the uh, Nazis did. Uh, that that's there. Um, well, the the pleated uranium Fallujah shock and awe. Uh, you know there are uh, massacres. You name it, they did it. So uh, you know the the best estimate is just during the course of the that war alone, 1.4 million um, uh, Iraqis were killed. And then before the war, uh, maybe 1.8 million Iraqis were exterminated by means of the uh, uh, genocidal uh, sanctions uh, imposed by the United States, starting with the uh, Bush Senior Administration in August of uh, 1990, uh, until they were removed uh, in um, uh, June of uh, 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 2003. So I, I do have a paper on um, global research you can look at, and I estimate, you know, at a minimum, the United States government exterminated 3.3 uh, million uh, Iraqis from August of 1990 until uh, Obama uh, finally pulled the U.S. out at the end of last year. Uh, so, uh, and that's a, a fairly uh, conservative estimate. Professor uh, Polya has given a higher figure of uh, maybe 4.7 million. So, somewhere in there uh, is what what we're talking about. Clearly, uh, uh, genocide. Can I ask you uh, if uh, your thoughts about uh, the the role of Canada in terms of uh, the Iraq war crimes? Because while they got a lot of attention for not officially supporting George Bush's uh, Coalition of the Willing. We did have uh, soldiers uh, in Afghanistan working in tandem with uh, with the uh, the United States and, and relieving soldiers there to fight in Iraq. Do, do you have any other uh, thoughts about, you know, to what extent Canada should be uh, sanctioned? Well, to its credit, the Canadian government did stay out of the... Uh uh, Iraq uh, slaughter by uh, Bush and Blair, and I think it should be commended for that. Uh, it did have a ship or some ships, I think, in the uh, Persian Gulf that were part of the uh, naval uh, interdiction. Uh, as for uh, what Canada has done in Afghanistan, that that's a uh, a separate uh, legal uh, issue that uh, I do address at greater length in my book, Tackling America's Toughest Questions, not specifically uh, Canada's um, uh, behavior. Oh, I do mention Canada, I think, in there. But the illegality uh, and criminality of the war against Afghanistan uh, that still, by the way, continues uh, uh, today as, as we speak and will continue at least till 2014, if not beyond. There's no real end in sight. Mm -hmm. Now, what about the responsibility of the individual soldiers themselves? I know that a number of them have uh, uh, abandoned the, the Iraq War, recognizing that this is uh, 
the wrong thing to do. Some of them have come to Canada to seek sanctuary, and uh, the, the the administration of Stephen Harper is uh, essentially branding them as uh, criminals because they are deserting the military, and desertion is considered a criminal offense. And so there have already been a few of these uh, resistors sent back to the United States as a result. Do you have any thoughts about what Canada's legal responsibility is with regard to to uh, Iraq war deserters who uh, seek sanctuary in Canada rather than go to to fight and serve in in, uh, what they come to see as an illegal and immoral war. Yes, it's very unfortunate what uh, Mr. Harper has done up there. As you know, during the Vietnam War, Canada kindly uh, gave asylum uh, to all the men of my generation who fled the uh, criminal uh, Vietnam War. And Mr. Harper, as you know, is a uh, soulmate of President Bush, uh, who, who started the war and uh, is, is returning these uh, uh, courageous individuals uh, back to the United States for prosecution. Uh, I helped in the defense of the first Gulf War uh, resistor, uh, Staff Sergeant Camilo Mejia, and also the highest-ranking officer uh, to refuse to go uh, to Iraq, uh, Lieutenant Aaron Watata. These cases are uh, explained in great detail in my book, Protesting Power, War, Resistance, and Law, which is why I wrote this book to explain to uh, other lawyers uh, how to defend these uh, uh, heroes, there's no question all about it, uh, men who have decided that as a matter of good faith and conscience, they could not serve in a criminal war a- and commit uh, war crimes. And that, you know, I, uh, 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 I go through the uh, basis for that in, in my book. Uh, in the case of uh, uh, Staff Sergeant Mejia, uh, the first uh, resistor, uh, he got a uh, kangaroo court proceeding, uh, Stalinist show trial by the Pentagon down at Fort Lewis, uh, Georgia. I was down there uh, for this at the end and was stripped of uh, all of his uh, witnesses except me. And at the uh, uh, end of the day, uh, he got, uh, I believe it was eight months, he was facing uh, two years he shouldn't have faced anything because it was a conscientious objector. And in the United States, you have a constitutional right of conscientious objection at any time, even in an all-volunteer uh, military force, as determined by the United States Supreme Court. I spent time with uh, uh, Staff Sergeant Mejia. He's a very courageous, principled man, uh, got the eight months. We immediately got him adopted a prisoner of conscience, by Amnesty International, just along the lines of uh, Sakharov or Havel or Ashan Suki uh, or any of these other uh, human rights uh, heroes that the United States praises around the world, uh, but not when it comes to our uh, our own people. Um, as for uh, Lieutenant Watata, yes, he was facing five or six different charges, uh, 11 years, and uh, we got uh, a mistrial because the uh, Pentagon was afraid of going to trial because if if they did with their case and our evidence, 
there's a very high likelihood that Lieutenant Watata would have been acquitted on the grounds that he refused to serve in a criminal war against Iraq and refused to commit war crimes. Uh, so he was out. And uh, no, no penalty. I mean, I, I believe he probably took some, you know, administrative discharge, but no time spent in uh, prison. And in uh, uh, Lieutenant Watata's case, uh, for the first time ever, uh, we had Amnesty International to uh, designate him as an anticipatory prisoner of conscience, namely that if he were convicted. Uh, and incarcerated after the end of this kangaroo court and Stalinist show trial, uh, Amnesty International was going to adopt him uh, as a prisoner of conscience. But fortunately, it, it never came to that. If you are interested in these cases and how we've uh, successfully defended them here in the United States, and uh, uh, you can read my book, Protesting Power, and the principles here are directly relevant uh, to the GI resistors uh, up in Canada uh, who fled this, this criminal war uh, in the United States, and I would hope their Canadian lawyers could get a hold of this book and try to apply some of those uh, uh, same principles and keep them in Canada instead of being sent back here for persecution. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partner radio stations across the country. We're also podcast at the website for the Center for Research on Globalization at globalresearch.ca. It is believed that the rise of the Democrats and Barack Obama to the U.S. presidency was secured in large part due to the unpopularity of the Iraq War, which became one of the hallmarks of the Bush Republicans. Now with Obama in power for four more years, questions have arisen about how much of an improvement he has been over Bush in terms of upholding the law and civil liberties. As a controversial memo has recently been leaked outlining the circumstances under which the drone assassination of U.S. citizens believed to be affiliated with al-Qaeda might be legal, we asked Professor Francis Boyle of the University of Illinois to compare the two presidents. Right. Well, first, before we get to the uh, drone memo, uh, yeah, uh, the uh, President Obama and the Obama people are basically uh, accessories after the fact to all the uh, Bush crimes uh, against and in Iraq. Uh, they've uh, covered it up and they've refused to prosecute anyone for any of these crimes despite having a uh, legal obligation under United States domestic law and treaties and international law uh, to prosecute them. So that uh, technically makes them accessories after the fact to all the crimes against Iraq. As for the drone memo, yes, to put Obama uh, into uh, context, even President Bush Jr. himself, now uh, a convicted war criminal, never arrogated to himself the alleged power to murder United States citizens. So Obama is worse than Bush. Second, uh, Obama waged this clearly illegal, genocidal, and unconstitutional war of aggression uh, against Libya in 2011 uh, without any authorization from the United States Congress. Well, again, uh, even President Bush Jr., in his wars against Afghanistan and Iraq, did get authorization from the United States Congress, uh, I think mistakenly so, 
uh, to wage those wars. Um, so again, on Libya, uh, President Obama is also worse than President Bush Jr. So uh, you have two counts here, um, uh, both uh, uh, foreign and domestic. Third, the National Defense Authorization Act uh, permits the U.S. military effectively to pick up anyone here in the United States, uh, including U.S. citizens, uh, and to detain them uh, and remove them and arguably to subject them to extraordinary rendition to another country where they could be tortured, uh, move them down to Gitmo, or uh, disappeared. And in the legislation produced by Congress uh, to for the NDAA, according to Senator Levin, it was President Obama's idea and demand that the NDAA apply to United States citizens here in the United States of America. Uh, now, that makes him just as bad as Bush, uh, because Bush did that to uh, 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 people here uh, in, the, in the United States. On the other two counts, he's worse. So I think that gives you a pretty good idea uh, of uh, uh, Obama, to some extent, is even worse with Bush. As for the drone memo, which, which I have read, studied quite carefully uh, yesterday, you, you have to understand that, of course, this drone memo is, is a summary of the uh, uh, opinions produced by the Office of uh, Legal uh, Counsel in the Department of Justice. It was written by uh, Professor uh, Barron at Harvard Law School and Professor uh, Lederman at, um, uh, sorry, Letterman at uh, uh, Georgetown uh, Law School, authorizing the murder of the United States citizens. Well, certainly you don't want to go study at Harvard Law School and Georgetown <laughs> Law School uh, with professors who have purported to authorize the murder of United States citizens uh, in violation of numerous statutes and treaties to which the United States government is a party and international uh, criminal law. If you read through the, uh, 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 the memo, which is based on the, the opinion, um, it's the same thing the Bush torture lawyers uh, did. And by the way, at the uh, Kuala Lumpur War Crimes Tribunal uh, last fall, in, in November of 2012, uh, we got uh, Bush, Cheney, uh, Rumsfeld, Tenet, and their lawyers convicted for torture and war crimes. And the whole purpose of these Bush uh, torture memos uh, produced by the same Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice, uh, which sort of reminds me of the Nazi uh, Ministry of Justice. Indeed, the, the Nazi Ministry of Justice produced similar uh, memoranda, and some of those lawyers were prosecuted. Mm. Uh, they did it for the reason that they wanted to concoct a defense for Bush and all the rest of them on torture. And the defense would be advice of counsel. Well, I was just doing what my lawyers told me that I could do, and therefore I did not have uh, criminal intent. Now, we successfully uh, 
destroyed that legalistic pedophoguing uh, at the uh, Kuala Lumpur War Crimes Tribunal uh, in uh, uh, November. I think Professor uh, Chasadovsky has materials on that on the Global Research uh, uh, website, did not accept uh, any of these arguments. And, in fact, these lawyers were simply part of a criminal conspiracy, along with Bush, Cheney, and the rest of them, to commit torture and, uh, and war crimes. It's the exact same thing on this uh, drone memo. Uh, if you read through it, you can't take any of it seriously. In effect, what is happening here is that the Office of Legal Counsel, the uh, Nazi Ministry of Justice, uh, and uh, Professor uh, Barron and uh, Letterman are attempting to concoct a uh, defense for Obama and Brennan and the CIA and the uh, people at the Department of Defense running the uh, drone campaigns. There are two of them, a CIA campaign and a Pentagon campaign. Uh, of advice of counsel, and basically saying, well, our lawyers told us uh, we could do it, and therefore we did not have criminal intent, so we could murder United States citizens to our uh, heart's content, as well as now approximately uh, 5,000 uh, Muslims, as, as best as you know, objective evidence uh, has been able to figure out. Well, uh, it, you know, it's clear if you read the memo, they're very worried uh, about the U.S. federal statute that expressly prohibits anyone here in the United States from murdering a U.S. citizen abroad. They're very worried uh, about that um, and, you know, did their best to cobble together whatever they could. They know they are vulnerable, certainly on that statute, and the uh, then if, if that statute also... Uh, would be the uh, the U.S. War Crimes Act, and I won't even get into the uh, International Criminal Court uh, uh, statute. Uh, well, I will actually. If, if you read the uh, ICC uh, statute, uh, the drone strikes are war crimes for sure. And when you have war crimes that are widespread or systematic, they become crimes against humanity. And that's clearly what is going on here. You have widespread and systematic drone campaigns by Obama, Brennan, uh, heads of the uh, uh, CIA uh, and uh, the, the uh, Special Operations Command in the Pentagon, and they are committing war crimes and crimes against humanity. And finally, uh, if you uh, read uh, Article 2, of the uh, Genocide Convention, uh, I think it's, uh, it's pretty clear uh, that Obama uh, has become a uh, genocidaire. We know for a fact that on Tuesday mornings, uh, Obama personally selects everyone to be murdered by drones and designates them to be uh, murdered. We also know that there have been about 5,000 Muslims uh, all over the world uh, murdered by Obama. Article 2 of the Genocide Convention, which, by the way, the United States government is a party to, and we have domestic implementing legislation making genocide a crime, says, in the present convention, genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part 
a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such, killing members of the group. Uh, well, notice the uh, language here, religious group, i.e. Muslims. To the best of my knowledge, all the uh, victims of the drone strikes have been Muslims around the world. And it also says in whole or in part. Uh, in part, I would say 5,000 is, is certainly enough to uh, qualify. Uh, the World Court in the uh, uh, Bosnia case ruled that the uh, 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 extermination of 7,500 uh, uh, Bosnian Muslims at Srebrenica uh, was genocide. So I think, you know, 5,000 dead Muslims by Obama uh, would qualify as genocide, too. These are... Um, so those are the, you know, the legal issues uh, as I see them today, uh, as, you know, as we speak. Uh, bringing the rule of law to bear on Obama uh, and the rest of them will be just as difficult as it has been to bring uh, the rule of law to bear uh, against uh, uh, Bush. And here I note the very courageous work uh, up in Canada done by uh, Gail Davidson, my colleague up there. Lawyers Against the War. war. We have three times tried to get Bush uh, prosecuted in Canada. Uh, One time, uh, I think one time, tried to get Cheney, but he chickened out. Uh, And I really don't know if Bush is going to go back back to Canada. And it's really Gail who has uh, uh, done the work you know, the laboring work on that, and I, I've assisted her to the extent I can. Uh, I also scared Bush uh, out of Switzerland. Uh, he was hmm. afraid of getting uh, prosecuted for torture there. There are no statute of limitations uh, for the commission of these international crimes. And so Bush and Blair and Obama uh, can be prosecuted uh, for these crimes for the rest of their lives, and by any state that wants to prosecute them. These are uh, uh, universal jurisdiction crimes. So, um, you know, it's really up to you, the listening audience, uh, to what extent we will be able to get these people put in jail. But I want to say, uh, you know, there's literally an army of lawyers out there uh, trying to track these people down and, and put them in jail, um, and uh, I'm confident, certainly, the Bush people we're going to get. And uh, uh, Obama, I guess, once he's out of office, uh, w- you know, we'll go after him. It's, it's very hard uh, because of uh, 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 head of state immunity uh, to get someone actually in office, a president in office. Uh, but once he's, he's out of office, he's fair game uh, for prosecution. And in the case of Obama, uh, unlike Bush... Bush was not a lawyer, um, and so I guess, you know, he could say, well, my lawyers told me I could do it, sort of like the devil made me do yeah. it. In the case of Obama, uh, he was after me at uh, Harvard Law School. Uh, he's a lawyer, uh, and he taught uh, constitutional law at the University of Chicago Law School, where I went as an undergrad. So Obama knows better, certainly, than Bush, and he's worse than Bush. Um, and so he's not even going to be able to prevail, I think, on any type of uh, advice of counsel 
defense for any of his international crimes. Professor Boyle, uh, your portrayal of uh, these uh, high officials as uh, uh, international renegades is, is certainly uncommon in the mainstream media, but uh, we do very much appreciate your bringing them to our program. I want to thank you for bringing that uh, expert viewpoint uh, to the Global Research News Hour. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, uh, thanks for having me on, and I wish I wish to say uh, bonjour to all my uh, French relatives, monarchs, uh, up in uh, Montreal. Okay. Uh, bonjour et à bientôt. That à was, bientôt. <laughs> that was uh, Professor Francis Boyle, international law and human rights expert and professor of law at the University of Illinois. As he states in his 2007 memoir, The Deserter's Tale, the story of an ordinary soldier who walked away from the war in Iraq, U.S. Private First Class Joshua Key believed the reasons given by the Bush administration for going to war in Iraq to protect America from terrorists and bring freedom to the Iraqi people. His experiences there dramatically changed his perspectives on the conflict, and in December of 2003, after serving Iraq almost from the start of the Iraq invasion, Joshua deserted the U.S. Army. After traveling through the U.S. with his wife, then wife and children for about a year, evading military police along the way, he finally crossed the border into Canada and has sought sanctuary rather than return to the U.S. where he would, he believes, likely face punishment for desertion. Joshua Key now joins us from his home in the province of Saskatchewan uh, to share with us his thoughts on and experiences with regard to the Iraq War. So thank you for joining us, Joshua Key. Oh, well, thanks for having me. So do you want to maybe just to sort of briefly outline some of the um, experiences you had in Iraq that uh, caused you to, to change your perspectives on uh, what that war was all about? Well, I'll leave it short. I mean, I think everyone has their own idea of what war is. Um, my time in the war, especially at the beginning, was very uh, bloody, very... Uh, you know, like it's, uh, I always try to put it in a nutshell of, um, chaos, destruction, and, uh, civilian deaths, uh, friends getting maimed, uh, I mean, it was a whole, uh, it, it was scary in itself. I look back now, you know, being pretty well 10 years, it's, uh, it's quite remarkable that it's been 10 years ago, but yet in my mind, it seems like it was yesterday. Um, it's, uh, Many things that, uh, you know, for what I consider and what the courts tell me, you know, many, uh, you know, crimes against humanity and, uh, war crimes and, uh, I myself witnessed and participated in many things that fall upon them lines. It, uh, very disturbing and very, you know, destructive, uh, especially to a person's soul as well as, uh, mine. That's a separate post-traumatic stress disorder. And I would say that's, uh, many, many, many of us do. Thousands. Mm. And, um, yeah, there have been many, uh, you know, casualties of that war, people who have uh, committed suicides as well, right? Uh, the suicide rate's going out the door, out the window. I mean, it's, uh, you know, for veterans from the war on terror from Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, as, as many as uh, 30 soldiers a month commit suicide, and that's veterans. And active duty as well. I mean, it, it's a number they don't they don't talk about much. It's been coming out more lately because it's such a problem, and it's something that they're going to have to address. It's uh, it, it's completely um, 
it's crazy. It's crazy to think that already that many people have uh, been taking their own lives because of what what we all did and participated in in war. Mm. Now, you crossed into Canada in 2005 uh, and, and sought to seek sanctuary here and, and not have to go back to the U.S. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that process uh, unrolled? Uh, it's been one hell of a roller coaster. I mean, it's uh, when I first came here in 2005, it was the, the Liberal government. Things, you know, things looked very much different uh, at the time I came here. It sort of had a decent amount of hope. Through the years, of course, as everyone knows, with the um, Harper government, I mean, uh, you know, things haven't diminished by any means, but things have really been a roller coaster. Like all. I've been to the immigration court many times. I'll win one, lose one, and then uh, and then it sort of goes with all of us like that. Uh, we all of us will lose, 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 and then we'll have one win. And I mean, there's a, a you know, there's a, I think around thirty of us here that are doing the same thing, which I am, which is uh, you know, in the in the process of trying to stay in Canada legally and fight the system. But it has been very, very hard. I mean, there's only a few groups of people that the government has uh, pretty well uh, deemed bogus refugee claimants, and I mean, in a personal manner, and that's been, uh, I guess, the Roma Gypsies is one, and the others has been the war resisters. And this became a very um, hard battle. I mean, you know, they've put out bulletin, uh, news bulletin 202, where the government stated that uh, no immigration officials along the whole board, regardless, are not allowed to grant us any status, so it's made it where we, we we we're all here, we're all within the system, but yet we're not allowed to work. We don't get health care. Um, I, I laugh many times because as we're hearing the radio and watching the news, you know, the pr- pr- minister of immigration, Mr. Kenny, it makes it seem like that all these uh, refugee applicants come here. We live off the system and. We were just, uh, you know, running everything up. And I think that's the most ludicrous thing I've ever heard in my life. That sounds quite different from uh, what uh, we've heard about the, the Vietnam War, when very much parallel to the Iraq War, people who could not uh, stomach the idea of going to, to Vietnam for, 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 le- for moral and legal reasons, they came up to Canada and were allowed to stay here. But uh, your, your, your experience has obviously been quite different, eh? Yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, of course everyone says, you know, that it was a, and sometimes it was the draft, and yes, it was. I mean, and that was the the, the big, big difference from now. But in, in other words, though, people don't understand of the the poverty draft. I mean, when you're looking at nothing, you have no future, and, and there is nothing. Um, like I, I, I've said, you know, at that time I was married to my ex-wife. I had three children. Uh, we had, we had, there was no future. There was nothing. I mean, it's either. You know, you go work at McDonald's and make nothing, or, you know, and then you go to a recruiter and they make it sound like you're joining the most best establishment in the world. Um, oh, you won't have to go to war, you won't have to do this, you won't have to do that. And at that time, you know, Afghanistan was going on, but in the military's eyes, as well as most of my time within the military, it was a joke. They didn't see Afghanistan as a, as a war. It was more of, at that time, a peacekeeping mission. Um, it was a complete a complete uh, joke as far as we were concerned at that time. You know, Iraq hadn't started. Uh, it was, um, it didn't, you know, for what I was being told of what I would be offered, I thought, uh, you know, why the hell, why wouldn't a person? I mean, that uh, to make a life for yourself, to actually uh, be able to sustain, have, have steady work. I wasn't in there for the college money. I mean, that wasn't, uh, well, it wasn't my deal. My deal was that I wanted steady work and health care for my family. 
And uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, uh, here you are in Canada, and uh, you're you're not quite so you're you're not really all that well off. I mean, you're still struggling to make ends meet, correct? Oh, at every given corner, yes. I mean, it's uh, I, I'm not allowed to work uh, legally. Um, it's uh, it's a give or take. I mean, you know, they don't let you. They don't allow you to work. They don't allow, allow you to have health care. Me and my uh, wife, uh, who is Canadian, we are in the uh, sponsorship This is the second wife, correct? Yes. We're in the sponsorship process, but still even within that process, uh, you can't, um, you can't, nor would we, but uh, you, you don't get no government help in any form. So you have to provide for yourselves and you have to do for yourselves, which makes it very difficult just in the sense that uh, I myself, from being a younger, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a skilled welder. I know that I could be making quite good money within Canada right now in many different places. But without having the ability to allow to work, you can't you can't produce nothing. Mm. Um, and also the healthcare situation. Like I, I go to an emergency room. Most people don't understand this. I go to an emergency room. They don't uh, take me in and do what needs to be done. They look at me and say, well, i, I got to have $500 before I can even let you go in the back. Mm. And it's uh, when you don't have any money, that means you ain't going to the emergency room. Um, I see how good that is for my my wife and my children here. I mean, because they, that's an awesome system to where they they get whatever they need covered. They walk into an emergency room, they get seen. It's quite different for myself, but it goes to all the refugees and all the people applying for refugee status in Canada. I, with the changes that's been made to the IFH, the Interim Federal Health. It's, it's very damning to what it has did to all, and uh, I, I worry about all people of, uh, that are within the processes of uh, the, the health of everyone because it's, uh, when they did that and they took that away, I mean, that, that put a very much a, uh, and also, you know, another, I guess, uh, thing that the, the Harper government stated that that was going to save, you know, taxpayers so much money, so much money. When it boiled down to it, it saved the uh, individual taxpayers three cents mm. to keep, uh, you know, these um, re- uh, refugee Refugees. applicants yeah. with the, the, the at least the essential health care that they needed. So Yeah, and that's not just people who are uh, U.S. vets, like v- refugees across the board. Exactly. That's all the way across the board. Okay. Now, I, I know that uh, you authored a book, The Deserter's Tale, and that's where I, probably where you really rose to prominence. Um, it, it really was a, a kind of like a, a whistleblowing uh, memoir. Uh, what uh, what have been the impacts of that uh, that book? I mean, beyond getting you a lot of international acclaim, has that helped your cause in any way? Oh, I would say it does. I would say it continues to. I mean, it. Uh, I, I can never do... Uh uh, interviews on the radio or television or newspapers, magazines that could ever get my story across, like the book has, um, with the being av- the av- the availability of it being in so many countries and in so many languages. I mean, it, it's helped the overall picture, and especially of people understanding why I'm in Canada and, and people like myself are here. It's, um, I mean, like I tell people, it's not this fantasy of uh, you know, since you got a book and it's you got to sell and you're making a million dollars because that's about a joke and a half. It is a bestseller in some countries, is it not? Uh, yes, yeah. In the, in Australia, it did quite well, and in uh, in in a few countries in Europe, it did. But it's uh, it's still like uh, like you know uh, Lawrence Hill, who uh, co- I co-wrote it or actually wrote it for me. Like we, 
I laughed because like he told me when we started, you know, you ain't going to see any money unless you sell, you sell a million copies. And I would have to say Larry was quite right. <laughs> mm. It's uh, Books are not a money-making uh, machine anymore. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's not uh, at all. Moneymaker for the publisher, perhaps. Uh, yeah, exactly. Moneymaker for them, I think so. But uh, as far as uh, by the time it trickles down to the individual author, uh, I think, uh, yeah, you have a better chance of uh, winning the lottery. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, what about uh, the uh, – have you uh, encountered other obstacles like, within your family in terms of uh, getting assistance from the government uh, financially? Well, as far as getting assistance from the government financially, I mean, that, 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 that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it took us years to get uh, child tax benefit for my Canadian-born children, for my Canadian wife. I mean, they withheld that for uh, over a year because uh, of who I was. I mean, they just kept on uh, sort of throwing it around and giving different excuses, and it was completely back and forth. Um, from the help of Olivia Chow uh, is how we got, actually got our uh, child tax money back to us. That's an NDP member of Parliament from Toronto, right? Yes. Um, uh, other than that, I mean, it's, uh, you know, ever since I came to this country, I've always said it, you know, all I've ever wanted to do is work and live in peace. And that's still all I want. What I've been here, this will be going on my eighth year in this country. Uh, actually, I, I can, uh, I guess that'll be as of March. I'll be here for eight years. <coughs> and it, um, I know it'll happen. I mean, it's going to, I can sure know that the the road is not done yet. I mean, there's still a lot of, a lot of time left and a lot of fighting left. And that's for me and all my fellow soldiers here. And it's a, uh, you know, to the ones that have been sent back and who go to prison, uh, it's a, um, I, you know, I, I, like I, I never would have came to this country and did what I have did if I ever would have thought for one second I would go back. I mean, you sort of have to look at it. You know the score when you leave. You know the score when you come across, across that border. Yeah, you're in it for the long haul. Um, I'll always uh, abide, abide by Canadian law, but I will fight till the end because uh, Geneva Conventions, international law, and things that should be uh, accounted and looked at, especially in my case, uh, I will make sure that they're looked at one, in one way or the other because uh, you can't uh, take people that are legitimate refugee claimants and uh, find a way to get rid of us and act like we don't exist in, in, this, in the sense not following their own treaties that they signed themselves. Joshua Key, is there, uh, for listeners who may be interested in assisting you and other uh, resistors and deserters, is there a, a website or, or a phone number or contact you'd like them to uh, get in touch with? Uh, there's always uh, resistors.ca, which gives a lot of uh, helpful information. Um, and then in Winnipeg and the surrounding area there, there's always, um, you can, I, the way I look at it, you can call it, contact my mother-in-law who, uh, and father-in-law who always does a lot of things for us when they can, and that's uh, Cheryl Lann and Daryl Rankin, and that's, uh, oh goodness, 204-792-3371. Okay, well, Joshua Key, uh, thank you very much for sharing these uh, experiences with us, and uh, all the best uh, in the future. Okay, well, thank you guys for listening. And I've been speaking with uh, Joshua Key, a U.S.-Iraq War deserter. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering stations across the country. We are now also podcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. 
You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week. <laughs>